fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seldom tells. On distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never Welcome to the greatest stories never told. Today's article is titled Potluck and was first published in Stab Magazine back in 2012 under the title Who Cares. It should have been his greatest hour. With his billabong contract on the line, 18-year-old Indonesian surf star Agus Fremanto had bested a field of Indonesian pros to win his first senior event and in some of the best waves ever seen for a national contest. Moments later, he was staring down the barrel of a year and a half in one of the most crowded prisons in the world. I travelled to Padang Prison in Sumatra to find out what happened. With its unmanned guard tower, asymmetrical walls and a few flimsy strings of barbed wire running along one edge, Padang Prison is definitely no Alcatraz. But don't be fooled, it's the shoddiness that frightens people most. Behind these walls, it's 55 to a cell, no beds unless you pay for one, a meal a day, and two hours outside your sweat cage per 24. It's said to be three times over capacity, and it's in here that you will also find three to four hundred juveniles mixed in with the men, though they're kept separate come bedtime. In a few minutes, I will meet two of its inmates. Four months ago, Agus Fremanto was the toast of Indonesian surfing. In one of the most important events in his nation's surfing history, the 18-year-old from tiny Nusalembongan bested a field of fettered senior pros to claim his first ever Indonesian tour win. In some of the best waves ever seen for a domestic contest, Agus overcame his Lembongan brother and fellow top-rated junior Putra Hermawan in the final, the 1-2 finish confirming the arrival of Indo's new generation. Better yet, with Agus's billabong contract set to expire in two months' time, the win also gave him a big shiny trophy to bring to the negotiating table. But the euphoria didn't last long. I'm sitting in a warung opposite Padang Prison with Agus's father, Ronnie, and we're stocking up on cakes to take into Agus. The last Ronnie had heard of his son before finding out he was in jail was a Facebook update saying he'd won the contest. I'm so happy, very, very happy, but five days and I hear nothing on the phone, no contact. I have no good feeling, he says. First, Ronnie tried calling his friends on tour, only to be told Agus was still surfing. They lying. I know they already finished. What they do there? His friend already come home to Bali. He was eventually told of his son's fate by the head of the Indonesian tour, Tipi Jabrik, but by then it was too late. Agus and his roommate, tour judge Wayan Damawan, were already in a Mentawai prison on charges of drug possession, and the greasy wheels of the Indonesian justice system had been set in motion. They are serving one and a half years each. Agus had a bad feeling about the contest before it even began. 
I tell my team manager I not want to go because of tsunami, he tells me later in prison. It would prove an uncanny piece of intuition when a 5.2 earthquake struck the island during the contest. But with a win set to earn him a 100% increase in his billabong salary and the contest, the first ever domestic event to be held in the mental wise, he was always going. Like many of the competitors, the trip would also be Agus's first to the mental wise. With the boat trip to the region averaging around US 5 grand, it's way beyond the means of most Indonesians. On this occasion, however, the Mentawai's government was footing the bill. It was a dream for everybody, especially the Indo guys, because all you hear and see about Mentawai's is in the magazines, and none of us can go there because it's too expensive, says Indonesian surf president Tipi Jabrik. The idea, as far as the government went, was to boost publicity for the land-based surf camps in the region in the hope of stealing back some of the millions in revenue generated each year by foreign-owned surf charters. Surfers would be travelling overland to get there and be staying at the camp nearest to HTs. Charter boats would be banned from the area for the six-day waiting period of the contest. And, just to make sure everything ran smoothly, a large police military contingent would be present on the island. All of Indo's big names had signed on to compete, including man of the moment Deddy Suriana, as well as Lee Wilson, Marlon Gerber and Pepin Hendrick. But if they thought they were travelling in style, they were tripping. Hi! It was a mission, laughs Dede. Two flights to Padang, a bus to Padang Harbour, an overnight ferry, a day layover, another ferry, this time packed with locals, chickens, surfboards, contest gear and spew. Everyone got sick, says Dede followed by a final small boat which spent the day toing and froing competitors and gear to the island, rounded off 36 hours in transit. It wasn't luxury, admits Tippy. But when surfers woke the following morning to the swell of the year at HTs, six to eight feet with the odd 10-foot wash through and not a soul on it, it was definitely worth it. Oh my God. I see the contest at Chopu and it's pumping and I'm thinking, how good are the waves? But HTs, it's the same as that contest. Better maybe, recalls Dede. With some logistics still to be taken care of, the contest is called off for the day, allowing a free surf to take place. But most surfers have only brought the boards they could carry. Two, most of which are 510s and 511s, leaving just Dede, Lee and Pepin to split the cartoonish sky blue caves among them. The next morning, with the swell dropping to a more manageable six feet, the contest is called on, but not before one tour official has his life threatened. The shouts of villagers behind him were the first Mark Clift knew he was in danger. The tour's Australian judge had been finishing off his morning cup of coffee at a beachside Warung when a disagreement broke out over the bill. He'd been asked to pay 70,000 rupiah or eight bucks for the coffee, plus the two beers he'd drunk the night before. But he'd already paid for the beers. In his patchy Indonesian, Clift tries to explain the situation, but they're not having it. They were yelling, you're lying, you're lying, you're trying to rip us off. When a villager spits at him and another tells him to fuck off, he takes off towards the judging tower. Suddenly he hears yelling over his shoulder. I turn around and here comes old mate, this looper with a big machete running up the beach after me, says Clift. Fortunately, there's a group of villagers between Clift and the machete wielder who's missing an eye. They get to him first. It takes five of them to get the knife out of his hand. All the while, he's writhing and making noises Clift didn't think were possible. It's the result of the black magic that inhabits these islands, says Dede. Here, if some people get attacked by a machete, nothing happens because of this magic. 
This guy, he get angry and he turn not himself like an animal and he don't remember what he do. He's like, gah, like a monster. I was like, fuck, you don't mess around here, man. Clift paid the extra 70k rupiah plus another 30k to finish the problem there and the villagers agreed to ban the man from the beach until the contest was over. No charges were laid by police, but the horror wasn't over. Later on when I got out to the judging hut, I said to the other white guy, hey, did you pay for your beers last night, recalls Clift? He goes, nah, I didn't, mate. I said, mate, they thought I was you this morning and there was so much grief over it and he's just gone, ha, sorry, dude. With the event underway, August makes light work of his early opponents. He beats fellow top-rated junior and recent world junior championship giant killer Dharmaputra Tonjo in round four, setting up a blockbuster quarterfinal with Dede Suryana. With two minutes remaining, August needs an 8-8-3 and Dede's got priority. A lull sets in, appearing to snuff out any slim chance of a boil over, but August starts paddling up the reef. With a minute to go, he snags a little runner and bang! bang, and then a reverse, and bang, bang, all the way. I watch it from behind, and I'm like, shit, I'm done, recalls Dede. It's a nine, the highest single wave score of the event, giving Agus the win. All the boys are cheering on the beach for him, which is not good for me, but I'm happy he got the wave. He knows how to use good waves, and he surfs good, says Dede. When Agus beats Mare Raditya in the semis, he sets up an unthinkable finale. On the other side of the draw, his best friend and longtime rival from Lumpongan Putra Hermawan has been on a similar run. In a fading swell, Agus takes it. He is overcome on the beach. This place and the people are so great and the wave is so perfect. It's the first time I ever surfed in a wave so good like this, he tells the reporter on the beach. That night, it's down to celebrating. Once inside the prison, it's not immediately clear who works here and who's an inmate. Everyone is smoking, and I take a seat next to a barefoot man sharing a joke with a prison guard. He turns out to be an inmate. While we wait, a new batch of prisoners arrive. They have their shirts removed, belongings folded and placed in a plastic bag, and their mugshots taken with a Nokia camera phone before being led away. When Agus finally walks out, I don't recognise him. He's paler than in the photos, his hair is longer, and he's lost some of his muscle tone. Wayan is with him too, and he tries to give me a smile, but spends the next few minutes staring blankly at a wall. Agus collects his cakes and takes a seat next to me, offering me some. I decline, but when he insists, I break off a piece. This isn't the first time we've spoken. When I'd first heard his story, I'd tried for two weeks to make contact with him in prison before someone suggested I just call him. He picked up his mobile in the third ring. Agus doesn't want to talk about his time inside. It's just a nightmare, he says. Though he does tell me that nothing has been worse than the first time he walked through the gates. Everyone was yelling at me. Hey you, come here, come here. It was so scary, he says. How exactly he came to be here is still a bit murky. The night after the final, Agus and a crew of competitors had been lounging around outside their hut when he was seized by police. With the only light on the island provided by generators and the supply of bintangs run out, the celebrations had been subdued. In the darkness, Agus says he was handed what he thought was a cigarette and took a puff before realising what he'd done. With the cops having their own little gathering just a few huts down, they were onto him in a flash. Lee Wilson was in his room when he heard the news. I just froze, man. You know, I was... I just froze. It was the worst news ever, he says, adding... Agus ain't no punk, man. He's one of the best men and kids I've met anywhere. It was just bad luck. Tippy Jabrik was p- 
packing boxes when the official from the Men's Wire Tourism Board raced to tell him. I said, it's really up to police what they are going to do. I cannot be involved. I have to protect the tour. I have to protect, you know, make sure this thing keeps going. Although officially Tippy had to protect the tour's interests, behind the scenes, he and the government official and a group of senior tour members had swung quickly into action, organising a meeting with police to see if anything could be done to spare Agus and Wayan a jail term. By morning, it looked like they'd succeeded, and with the tour leaving the mentalise that day, the surfer and the judge would be among them. On the way home, the crew stopped at a nearby island for a ceremony and the presentation of the winner's checks. That night, Agus celebrated with the rest of the boys, but his intuition was spiking. I didn't have a good feeling. I was still nervous, he says. The next morning, he and Wayan were called to the hotel's reception where they were again taken into custody by police. It was three days after this that Ronnie found out the news. Maybe I can help make it clear. Maybe my son not have to be in prison now. I'm very angry, but not with Agus, with the people who should have been responsible for him, says Ronnie. Why it took so long for him to find out was not the fault of any of the tour's crew. Agus didn't want him alerted. He didn't want to disappoint him. When I meet Tippy to discuss the incident, it's at the Oakley World Pro Junior in Bali, where Agus would likely have represented Indonesia. And he's reluctant to go into it, citing concerns about harming relationships with the tour's sponsors and the Mentawai's government. But it's obvious the saga has taken its toll on him too. With a tinge of red in his eyes, he lets out some feeling. For me, what I can see is that every single thing that happens in this part of the world is two things. Black and white, bad and good, night and day. In his situation, the good thing is that it's a lesson. The bad thing is that some people have to take the blame. He pauses, looking out to sea. The hardest thing is that he's so young, and here, the way things work, nothing is clear. He won't know what's going to happen, or when, and that must be really hard on him. For the Fremanto family, the emotional strain is only part of the struggle. So far, the cost of legal bills, travel to and from Sumatra, buying a goose, quote-unquote, friends, extra food, and to bed in jail, and various other fees have topped 300 million rupiah, or Australian $35,000, according to Ronnie. For Ronnie, who earns a living as a masseuse back on the small island of Lumbongan, it's not exactly chump change. While we're in prison, the financial strain is revealed in a heartbreaking scene. In the four months since Agus and Wayan arrived here, they've held out hope for one thing more than any other, a transfer to Bali to be closer to their families. But such a move would cost 25 million rupiah, or Australian $2,500, and neither of the families has it. As he delivers the news, Ronnie holds his son by the shoulder, speaking into his ear. Agus nods stoically at the ground, pinching the bridge of his nose and wiping away a tear. Wayan remains slumped in the chair next to me, staring blankly at the wall. While it's been a nightmare for Agus, his dad hasn't fared much better. He still can't believe his son, the intelligent, family-minded kid with aspirations of studying English literacy and culture at university next year, could end up in jail. I never see him drunk or drinking. He is a nice, very nice person. I was surprised, very, very surprised by this problem. Why it come to him, he says. As soon as they were told the news, Ronnie and his wife had rushed to Padang to be by their son's side, arriving in the harbour as Agus was ferried in from the Mentawise prison. Me and my wife are crying in the harbour. Together we came here with him. My son is still handcuffed. It was fucking. He stops and shake his head. Until a week I am crying. 
For the first three months, Ronnie gave up his job and moved to Padang. For the first week, he stayed with his son in the jail until 2am, cradling him as he wept. He say, Papa, Papa, please don't leave me. Can you stay here with me? I'm crying too, so I stay here all the time at the front of the jail with him, says Ronnie. Despite it all, on the surface at least, Ronnie maintains a smile. During the journey to Sumatra, he made me blush trying to pay for my food. When I lost my boarding pass in the airport, he helped me dig through my belongings as if I were his own son. He even regards the prison guards with warmth when they stop for a chat on their way to lunch. For Agus, who along with Wayan will be released in March 2012 should everything go to plan, he's just counting the seconds until he can get back in the water. I'm just going to surf all day, every day when I get out, he tells me. But he will be doing so without a major sponsor. Billabong declined to re-sign him when his contract expired in August, though a spokesman told me we will continue to look at ways to help through these most difficult of times. And they haven't ruled out re-signing him when he gets out. It wasn't the news Agus was after, but he's not giving up on the dream yet. Before I leave, he gives me a note. It reads, What I feel. Everybody doesn't like to be here, me included, but it's my mistake I want to be responsible for. It's hard here, away from my family and friends, limited to do anything, of course. Surfing too. What I worry about. I don't worry about anything. Everybody is kind to me here. I believe my family and my friends will support me always. If you think it's about sponsorship, with or without sponsorship, it can't make me stop being a surfer. What I plan. It's an important experience in my life. I wish it will be the first and the last here. I will learn how to be better and fix up my attitude. After I come out of here, I will enjoy my surfing again. Honestly, I miss comps. I miss surfing. The end. The end.